Today's episode of Undesign comes to you from the land of the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation. We acknowledge and pay respects to all elders, past, present, and emerging. Have we started recording? Oh, cool. We're already recording anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Cheeky boy. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to Undesign. I'm your host Costa and thank you so much for joining me on this mammoth task to untangle the world's wicked problems and redesign new futures. I know firsthand we can all bring so much to these challenges, so listen in and see where you fit into the solution as we go on to undesign the concept of digital activism and online petitions. At this point it's almost become a cliche to comment on the effect COVID-19 has had on many aspects of our lives. From travel to mental health, I think we can acknowledge that, yes, 2020 was a big one. But one area which has seen an increase in user activity that's worth talking about is digital activism. Well, that is an increase in the use of our everyday digital communication technologies like the internet, smartphones, and social media to support broader efforts for civic and social progress. According to change.org, the online petitions platform, there's been an unprecedented increase in civic engagement around the world since the pandemic began. Change.org alone reported more than 400 million users in 2020, with more than 3 million signatures recorded each week. On the one hand, it makes sense to see such an increase in online activism. The emotional conditions and the human rights implications of pandemic-related measures and the inequalities such measures can exacerbate seem like a perfect recipe for equity and justice-seeking behaviour. But in the sea of content that exists on social media, you could be forgiven for seeing one of those petitions and continuing to scroll. There are just so many social issues to care about and so many things to do. What good is a petition, right? Do they actually achieve their goals? Well, on today's episode of Undesign, we are joined by Emmy Suzuki Harris. Emmy is the Asia Regional Director for the Change.org Foundation, the philanthropic initiative of Change.org, and has been with the organization for over eight years. She was previously the campaign director in Japan, and has also worked as a senior strategist at Purpose, a global social impact consultancy. We dive into some of the questions that she and her team spend every day trying better to understand, like what makes a campaign successful? What are the fears and concerns that campaigners have to reckon with? How do we even know if petitions even work? And what are the other benefits of digital participation in social change? Emmy gives us a raw, candid and reflective take on these questions making it very clear that there is no silver bullet that leads to enduring change. However, Emmy's perspective is one which is also rich with beautiful anecdotes about the campaigns that have led to real change for people all over the world. So what are those variables that make these efforts worthwhile and how can we extend our impact? Hi Emmy, how are you doing? I'm well, how are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for joining us today. Where are you calling in from? I am calling in from Tokyo, Japan, um, where my younger daughter has a fever and is upstairs and the COVID numbers have been increasing daily. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, well, look, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today about a topic that I think we've seen a lot more of um, in the current circumstances. It's uh, probably a topic that you know, you know very well, considering what you do, which is digital activism. So 
My first question, really, just to set the scene, is how would you define digital activism to someone that hasn't really heard the concept before? Mm, totally. Um, I was thinking about this because I knew that this was our topic. Um, but it's strange because the activism that I've been involved in has never not been digital. Right. <laughs> so I got yeah. my teeth on politics in the Obama campaign in 2008. And it was just always, it was like, it started with social media and, you know, my bow and all these things. And I feel like that's um, the first presidential campaign, at least where like those, those tools really blew up. Um, and then subsequently sort of join, join change where obviously online petitions are the tool that we offer. But I suppose um, it's activism that leverages all sort of like the beauty and power of the internet, which in and of itself is such like a tool of, you know, democratic expression um, in its, in its best form. Yeah. Wow. That's, it's been a while since I've heard anyone describe anything to do with the internet as uh, beautiful, <laughs> but it's true. Was... Yeah. Maybe I'm a bit nostalgic for when the internet was a little bit more beautiful, <laughs> but I still believe it's there. It's been warped a little bit by commercial interests, but I like to think right. um, yep. that it is a tool that really, it changes the game. It changes the game entirely, especially for activists. And um, it's, I think like the moments that make me cry in my job are definitely moments where you see people using it as a tool for good to make their voices heard. Actually, that seems like a good place to sort of start from. Can you speak on that a little bit in terms of like the way, the powerful ways that you've seen activism harnessed in digital spaces mm. and some, you know, what are some of the the beautiful things that you've seen, um, you know, just to start off with a bit of hope and optimism. I think that's a lovely way to start because we're going to get to the challenges soon enough. <laughs> But. Totally, totally. Gosh, well, um, so, oh, so many, but a recent one maybe where I was like, oh, that's so wonderful is, um, so I, I, I launched Change.org in Japan. And right. uh, anyone who's been to Japan or knows anything about Japanese culture knows that, you know, raising one's voice is not necessarily something that comes naturally to your average Japanese person. Um, it's just a culture that really prioritizes homogeneity and kind of being the same and not rocking the boat. Just, yeah, like in every fiber of its like cultural makeup, I think. Um, and so getting change to start in Japan was was really quite difficult. Um, it took a good number of years to help people to get to a place where they were comfortable with it. Um, but now we see so many more campaigns. And I think the ones that I love the most are when you see sort of like a, a you know, sort of marginalized population in, in Japan sort of like. First, I think they connect online, which I think is like the yeah. most powerful thing. It's like, you know, instead of being isolated in your own town or city, you realize, oh, wow, there's like actually people out there who are experiencing the same thing as me. Um, and then from there, sort of they coalesce around sort of like an identity and then decide, okay, like now is the time to sort of like raise, raise our voice and make the system change um, on our behalf. Um, and I was reading sort of like a memoir by one of our staff in Team Japan recently. Um, his name is Mamata-san and he's a transgender activist. He's been a transgender activist since he was about 15 years old. And they do this annual, um, very cool uh, sort of like event um, around um, Transgender Visibility Day, which is like sort of an international event. Um, but they had to be really careful about like the tactic that they use to sort of just raise their voice at the beginning. And he was describing it in this book. And the first day that the first time he did it, he literally just posted to, I think it was Mixi at the time, because that was like the local Japanese social network. And he was connected to like a bunch of people sort of like in the LGBT space. And he was like, look, I'm going to stand on a street corner in, you know, sort of like Nakano or something. So like like place like in Tokyo, have a megaphone and just like, I will read out all of the messages you tell me um, for this oh, day. Wow. 
Yeah. And like, it just became this like, like tiny little viral thing. Right. And I know like hundreds of messages on this, like Facebook thread, because obviously he had lots of friends um, in, in, in the community. Um, and then like for hours that day, he and his friends were there, you know, sort of like reading out these messages, you know, recording it, sort of like um, putting it back on YouTube. And it was just like, it's just, even that was like really powerful. I mean, like in the book, he describes seeing sort of like a high school student kind of just like watching from afar and then right. giving him this handwritten note of something that like he or she wanted um, Amadisan to read. And it was like, you know, thank you for doing this because it's the first time that I've ever felt sort of included in, and I always felt like I was alone on this. Um, and that's not like a campaign. That's not like a petition, but it's just like a moment where like, because people can connect and share their stories, like they were able to like, even sort of like, you know, kind of claim space um, in a public arena that wasn't there before. And like, since then every year they've done it, it's actually spread across the country on that day. Like many people are just like reading these messages out um, to raise visibility um, about the fact that transgender people exist in society, yes. right? And it's such yes. a small yes. step and yet also such a big step. So I was reading that and I was like, oh, like chills, you know, like, yeah. And hopefully, and in the future, they will, they will start campaigning more and like start challenging the way that, you know, we exclude transgender people from yeah. various, you know, sort of institutions here. But it starts with something like that, um, which I think is really profound and important. That's beautiful. And actually, hearing you talk about that, it sounds kind of like a metaphor for organizations like Change, right? Where they are this platform that boost the voices and opinions of other people on particular topics. So, you know, your colleague took took on that role of totally. messi- message amplifier. Yeah, absolutely. He was, before Change.org got to Japan, he was the petition platform. Yeah, he, <laughs> Almost, he, yeah. He, he was Change.org. Totally, you know, totally. For that, for he was moment. like, I will be the messenger. Um, right. Yeah. That's beautiful. Totally. I, I guess then in that case, um, I don't know if it's almost too early to jump into some of the challenges, but I guess, you know, we're talking about this because, you know, given the world lockdown for at least a year, um, you know, I was reading the pandemic report Mm. that change.org foundation released regarding just um, the, the spike in online activity in in petitioning. Last year was insane on that front. Yeah. Can you, can you talk, what what was that like from your end to see such a spike in activity in that end? And, you know, how do you measure the impact? That's the next question, I guess. But yeah, tell us what the last year has been like in the digital activism space for you guys. Totally. Um, So I think like the the first caveat I'll say is like there, it's not like there was a universal trend anywhere. Like I think there were countries where, like in Japan, for example, where the, like the lockdown situation kind of led to just huge numbers. I think we had like double the number of petitions from the year before to last year and like new segments of people, especially young people taking to um, change.org to raise their voice on like a variety of issues, both like, you know, open my school to close my school to like, you know, lots of different things. And I think what was really interesting about it was previously it was sometimes a little bit hard to get um, decision makers to respond to like a purely digital petition format. So a lot of like what uh, petition starters um, in, I would say sort of like countries where decision makers are a little bit more old school, maybe not used to dealing with sort of online voices as much. Like you have to take the petition Mm -hmm. and then physically deliver it to like the office of sort of like the MP or like the, um, the cabinet member, et cetera. And that's like something that often people are puzzled by. They're like, oh, I have to go that far to do it. But because you're trying to plug into this like system that is very much kind of like, you know, 
flesh and blood buildings, you know, sort of paper in the case of Japanese bureaucracy, like printing it and taking it to sort of like the, the, the DM, the decision makers, we call them, it was like a core part of that experience. But I think because last year, suddenly that was a dangerous thing to do, right? Like it was like, okay, like we can't actually physically go and deliver things, especially in the early days when people didn't know that much. I think there was a lot of fear um, on both sides. And at the same time, there was a lot of pressure on decision makers to seem, be, seem responsive to public needs in real time. And so I thought, I think we saw like really like a record number of sort of campaigns getting some form of traction very quickly, which is like quite rare in a conservative and slow moving country like Japan. Um, flip side, there are countries where like there wasn't actually like a huge increase. Like obviously my support remit in, in change.org is, is um, includes countries like Thailand and Indonesia. India saw a huge spike, less so in Thailand and Indonesia, possibly because the Thailand government's response to the pandemic was actually quite strong, um, at least in the early stages. They walked down right. very quickly, did a bunch of economic boosting. Like yeah. I think people were feeling, compared to the rest of the world, let's say, like people were feeling really good about the Thai government's response. Um, and they even got, I think, like lauded by the WHO later on. So really differs by country, but I would say sort of like there was this physical imperative to shift online that really drove a lot of activity for a lot of countries, um, including Japan. We saw big spikes in South Africa, lots of countries in Europe and, and um, Latin America and North America. So, uh, you know, just on that comment around sort of uh, perceptions of the Thai government's strong response. Mm. And I guess in Australia, in Australia, we're more on that boat, I would say. Than, totally. Australia has been possibly other really on top of it is my impression. <laughs> partic particularly where we've been in Western Australia, like, you know, it's more or less been business as usual compared to the rest of the world. We're very fortunate. But I guess uh, from your view, was there a correlation between, um, you know, jurisdictions and nations that had, particular responses to the COVID pandemic that mm. saw an increase and those that didn't? Like, for example, you know, was the uptake in places like Thailand and Australia? Like, was Australia in that um, fr mm. from That's a great question. Was I that, actually don't yeah. remember what happened in Australia. <laughs> I just remember thinking, wow, Australia feels like they are really on top of their response. Um, and we had, you know, with like a very strict lockdown very kind of like like the, a desire to get numbers all the way down to zero so that like you know you're really right. kind of like controlling it um and i think someone was telling me that, that now there's like no mask mandate or anything like in australia or something like that but yeah like i think that kind of early response is also easier to do i guess if you're sort of you know surrounded by water and like borders are not as open i think it's more challenging to right. do that in a in a, like a situation like in europe but i'm sure that it had an impact because yes yeah, like I think you see it, especially sort of like in, in Europe and the US, tons and tons and tons of petitions on sort of like how to respond, you know, sort of like making, um, you know, investments in, you know, sort of like various populations that were deeply affected um, by the pandemic. Yeah, like lots of activity last year, especially sort of once things locked down. One campaign example that comes to mind that I briefly read about was Tonya Merz's campaign for UBI, uh, universal basic income in Germany. Mm, and how, yes, uh, interesting. You know, it, yeah, I thought that was a very interesting example um, about, you know, essentially kind of considered a more successful sort of campaign on that, on that front. Um, are you able to talk to the aspects of that sort of campaign that you think made that a bit more effective or successful? Mm, I'm not as familiar with that campaign specifically, but I thought what was really smart about it was like, yep. 
the using a moment of like extreme economic uncertainty to make an argument for something like that. And in a moment where everybody and their mom is online, <laughs> right. Yeah, and sort of right. occupying online spaces. If I remember correctly, they were doing, you know, sort of like really coordinated efforts around sort of like Twitter and other kind of like, it was basically like the, the public square arena. Um, now that people were sort of um, digitally, you know, basically confined to digital spaces. Um, and it was a really coordinated effort. Um, I'm sorry, beyond that, I don't have like too much detail, but yeah, I was really impressed that they were able to get so much traction on an issue that quite frankly, in most of the countries that I support is like a non-starter <laughs> as of now. Um, so definitely sort of like Germany leading the way on that front. <laughs> right. Well, I guess that kind of, you know, makes me want to zoom out now, again, just out of the current context and looking at digital activism practice more generally. Are there, are there any clear elements that make campaigns, some campaigns more successful than others? Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a key question that I feel like change.org has tried to, like we put our lens on that all the time in the hopes of trying to crack that and like get that recipe and formula to more people. Um, and I think we have some, some inkling of it, a lot of it, which is not obviously like original to change.org. I feel like change.org's roots comes from online organizing, you know, sort of in, in, especially in the U S. Um, but you know, it's like things like having like a very concrete and specific, you know, what we call ask, um, around, um, the thing that you're sort of trying to change, having a responsive and, you know, sort of accessible decision maker, I think is another sort of key part of it. And then also being clear about sort of like who your constituency is, right? It's like, right. rather than trying to get everybody um, in the population to agree with you, it's like what you're trying to do is find something that is clear, narrow, kind of like, um, and graspable, I think. Um, and then I think the other element that maybe is a little bit more change.org-like is that we really think that personal stories go a long way to humanizing the issues that are being campaigned on. Which is why, like, on the site, if you're starting a petition, actually in the guidance that you're offered, it says, like, you know, try to speak personally, talk about your story, like, who do you know that this issue is affected? Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of studies showing that when people, you know, consume stories, they're really consuming them, like, through the details that are being described. And I think the biggest maybe mistake that I see um, amongst petition starters is that they sometimes... A, go too big. So they aim their, you know, sort of like petition at like the president or the prime minister. And like, it's, it's not impossible to reach those people, but it is very, very difficult. Um, and so it's like trying to think about like we, when we do our training sessions for, um, for campaigners, we think of it as like a triangle in which there are many small triangles. And it's like your big mm. triangle might be, say, like in Mamatasan's case, like, you know, full uh, legal equality for transgender people and like every aspect of life so that they can sort of do the things that they want to do. But you can't get it all at once. In classic campaigner style, you got to go for like one small triangle within that larger pyramid. Um, and so I think from a tech perspective, we're trying to help people in that sort of, you know, creative petition flow to think about that and be strategic. Um, but I think honestly, it's like it is hard to do, even for a professional campaigner to think through sort of like what that might be. And I think that's another reason why the, the secret to success at change is not just the tech, but combining that with like really solid support from real humans right. who like know how this stuff works so that like everybody can have access to that tool set. That's actually been a recurring theme amongst a lot of the conversations we've had so far in terms of this inter interplay between online and offline mm. kind of dynamics, totally. which kind of brings me to the heart, I think, of this conversation, which is how do we know that digital activism works, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of cynicism towards, um, uh, you know, visibly 
uh, you know, visible activist activity. Some people call it virtue signaling. Other people will get, you know, upset around activism or uh, sorry, clicktivism or slacktivism. I've got two two quotes here that I think kind of sum up the competing positions. One's from a journalist in The Guardian, and they wrote that clicktivism is to activism as McDonald's is to a slow cooked meal. It may, look like food. <laughs> it may look like food, but the life-giving nutrients are long gone. So that's mm. one very cynical take. Mm. On totally. the other hand, there was some research that came out um, around sort of how activism is sort of deployed in the US context. And it said one of the biggest misconceptions is that it doesn't do anything. The second is that it somehow displaces or replaces offline activism. We know that both of these are not true. Mm. So you've got these really two big competing schools of thought. Where do you, where do you? Look, I think both can coexist. Um, and it depends on the campaign that you're looking at, to be honest. Um, right. There are campaigns that probably could be labeled clicktivism where, you know, it's kind of maybe more, hmm, like it's more about people feeling better about themselves in the moment um, and not really about achieving substantial like offline impact in whatever form, right? That may be, whether it's like a new narrative or, you know, sort of um, occupying space or, you know, actually achieving sort of at the end of the day, kind of like changes in policy or the way that big institutions in particular um, treat people. So I feel like, yes, absolutely. There are lots of campaigns like that. Simultaneously, I think that to say all online activist activity say like all petitions on change.org are just clicktivism, I think just is yep. a you know, massive like disservice to really all of the hard work that happens um, on behalf of hundreds, thousands of tens of thousands of petition of starters who are like taking their campaigns. I think like the, the petition starters we see succeed are the ones who understand this though. They understand that a petition is only a tool. It is not the end game, right? So like a petition is really when you like sort of peel the surface back on a technology level, it's like a database of people who are your supporters. And then you really have to put on your organizer hat, right? It's like, okay, so how am I going to deploy these people who agree with this issue in the most effective way to create the change that they want to see in the world? And I think yep. that ultimately in most of the countries where we operate, I would say like, it is rare that it doesn't have an offline component, right? Whether right. that's reaching yes. the off, like, you know, decision maker offline, doing some form of manifestation of that sort of like sentiment um, in an offline space. I think it's hard to have a real impact in the world doing it entirely digitally. Although I I've seen so much creativity around that over the past right. year, given the constraints yeah. that people are facing. Um, but yeah, I feel like connecting it there. And that I think is like a failure on the part of the change.org site right now. Because I think we could be better at helping people to understand that, right? It's like, it's this is not, coming to change.org is a step one of like a longer journey. Um, and, but I think it's hard, right? Because we also want people to start the petition. So we don't want to make it seem too hard because then it gets intimidating. So it's like, it's a fine balance that we're trying to strike. But yeah, so I think both both can be true. Is that okay as an answer? <laughs> For the I two competing schools no, of thought. <laughs> I'll ask you the hard questions and then you can give me the hard totally, answers. So totally, totally, yeah. Fine. But it's my classic I, I, sort of half Japanese, half American identity take. It's like both can be true. <laughs> but, you know, hey, look, in a in a post-truth world, so to speak. There you go. Oh, my God, terrifying. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. no, I think that's actually a very sobering um, answer that I think, you know, it might be unsatisfying for some to just be like, well, how do we know what, 
where this actually leads to, you know, and like, what's the point of investing this time in it when really it's about, well, how committed are you to the conversation in the first place? And what does this campaign or engagement with this campaign actually represent for you? So I guess my question really is then like, okay, there's a level of personal responsibility that I think comes with standing up for a social cause, right? So, Mm. you know, our online behavior, if we are using our platforms to talk about these issues or to sign a petition and get other people to sign, that signals to people that you are committed in some way, right? Mm. In In the reality that we can't actually see how far that activism actually translate into the offline circumstances. Is there an argument to be made that that's not, that's still not necessarily a bad thing if people are supporting something, Mm. even if the rest of their um, offline activity is not so clear. So, you know, not, I'm not talking about like outwardly contradictory examples where people do one thing and completely do the opposite. Um, And there's that fine balance between sort of performative activism, you know, being seen to be an activist but also just being like, actually, I'm just going to make my position clear on something. Mm. Um, you know, what do you think are the other benefits of yeah. civic participation in a digital space like that? That's such an interesting question. And I feel like it's one that we think about a lot, especially for the Asian countries that we support. Um mm-hmm. I feel like all my examples are from Asia because that's where I've been for the past like eight years. But the it's really hard, right? Often in Asian cultures, there is a active disincentive to express your political opinion. And maybe, maybe it's not even political. Maybe it's just like your opinion, right? Um, yeah, okay. It's like, you know, sort of classic, um, you know, kind of like, like, you know, team meeting where manager asks for questions and it's like silence because like it hasn't been set up in a way that like people feel comfortable sort of giving their opinion. Um, that's certainly true in like the East Asian cultures that we've dealt with, very true in Thailand and Indonesia slightly less true in India. So like the dynamics are different there. So I don't want to like paint it like too broadly, but I would say there are a lot of cultures out there where even expressing your opinion is a actually very truly revolutionary act. (laughs) Um, And so like, I don't know, my, my country director in Thailand, Boris is like, you know, I think she, she really articulates this well. And I wish she were here. She she's like expressed it much better than I do, but you know, they're in a country that's tough to raise your voice in, right? There are real consequences to say, criticizing the current, um, you know, sort of political system. You could be thrown in jail. People have been thrown in jail for posting a BBC article that was then later, you know, dubbed as being critical of the King. Like it's really dicey. And so in that context, the meaning of 5,000 petition signatures on a change.org campaign, 10,000 is like, how do you even weigh that or compare that to a country where, freedom of speech is guaranteed. And, you know, you, you can say anything about anyone and no one's ever going to sort of threaten your, your life or your family. Um, so I think in that regard, like it really depends on the context. And for that person, even signing a petition can be really huge. Um, and so I don't know, there's like, I think sometimes some tension within change.org because sometimes it's hard to get folks who are operating from a more privileged context to understand. Yeah. Like, you know, that's a big deal. And like, you got to yeah. start somewhere, right? Um, that's, a, that's a really big elephant in the room, at least uh, for me anyway, just reflecting on that. As soon as I asked that question, I kind of realized, well, I come from a context here in Australia that at the most, 
um, you might be socially sanctioned. <laughs> right, else, right, right, right. You know, uh, ge- generally speaking, obviously that is going to be different from community to community, from context to context. But by and large, mm. you know, free speech, whatever that means, um, is something that is prized here. And, you know, vocal po- political participation is generally at a good standard here. So, yeah. yeah, it's good to remind ourselves that, you know, we can't be too quick to assume what someone's activism, like that everyone's activism at the same level looks the same way or that someone with the biggest intent is, necess- is not necessarily going to change the world um, mm-hmm. in one go. Like we're starting from very different starting points. Totally. And I would say, actually, even even in countries where it's fairly privileged, like the the act of raising your voice still incurs like lots of costs, right? So I remember right. in the UK, um, there were like a series of change order campaigns that were related to removing it was called like sort of uh, remove page three, where there's like a I think sort of like a scantily clad model in like a tabloid or something in the UK, and like sort of the the you know sort of young feminists were saying like that's not cool, you know, it's not what I want to look at when I read the news, right? It's just like, yeah. uh, not, not the bar we should be holding our mass media to, let's put it that way. Um, but there was an internal discussion at change and sort of like some, um, support mechanisms introduced for, for the people who were working on those campaigns because the, the blowback from the online sphere towards these women for even saying these things was so mm. intense, right? Like, of course. Trolling, tracking down street addresses, you know, making active threats. Like, and that's, and that's in the UK, right? I mean, like, it's yeah. the, I don't know, we've had, you know, risks and safety issues for many of our staff um, across Asia. And I'm sure it's true in many of the other more dicey um, environments that we're working in. So I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it takes a lot. It takes a lot to be of this course. position starter. And then in some contexts, even to be the signer, there's like a real price to be paid. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I guess do platforms like change? Um, I imagine, yeah, like you say, you know, safety would be a big concern and a big incentive or disincentive, depending on what is available to protect someone. Totally. Do change.org or, you know, other sort of digital campaign platforms, do they, can you make any guarantees or provide any safeguards that allow people to feel safe to mm. um, enter the civic discussion? Um, in a way that they can at least try and protect themselves a bit better? Totally. That's a great question. I actually don't know if I have a good answer. Um, sure. Hmm. Where is the like most recent pressure, at least in the region that I support at change.org, is coming from increasingly sort of authoritarian tendencies in governments who want to be able to demand of social media platforms like user data about specific right. campaigns. Um. And so say, for example, in India recently, they rolled out a new regulation where uh, every significant social media platform has to have staff in the country who are named, who will face jail time if content is not removed quickly enough or user data is not sort of like given over quickly enough. Um, Now, like we have like, you know, excellent lawyers who are, you know, sort of like always advising us on like sort of issues that come up. Like it wouldn't be the first time that sort of governments demand um, this kind of thing. We actively resist it. The only time that we ever sort of like um, you know, sort of hand over that kind of data is if there's like a court order in the country that is um, relevant um, for that petition. But it's not it's not an easy you know thing because I think a lot of the risks that people face are not even within the change.org platform. 
right? So like on change.org, like user, user data may be safe, but as soon as you go on Twitter, like and you're actively tweeting about a petition, you might face, you know, an onslaught of hate. Mm. Um, you know, even staff at change.org face a lot of hate for like even just being part of the organization. So it's hard. I wish I had a better answer. It's like a, an area that like actively is like a strategic area of research this year to like figure out what we're going to do. Um, right. So please, if you interview anyone who has the answer to that, I want to meet them. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, hey, we've, we've spoken to some other very cool people that, you know, maybe will give you some sparks of imagination totally. there too. But yeah. I guess, Emmy, like in, in the event that I can't, um, that change.org itself may not be able to give the answer to this. Um, if I were to give you like a magic wand mm. to just remove one obstacle that you feel gets in the way of a lot of the progress, yeah. what would you use it to, to fix oh and why? Man, that's a hard one. Um, yeah. There's With so a lot many of power, things I wish I could fix. I can't do one, just one. That's so hard. <laughs> yeah, just one. If you just had to think like, I want to just move this one out of the way because it'll make all this other stuff a bit easier. Honestly, I feel like the the changes that I would want to seek, especially in the region that I support, are not technical. Um, yes, of course, I wish it was easier to reach people on like the channels that we used to reach them, so like campaigns could get more traction. Yada yada yada. I wish decision makers okay. would be more responsive. But really, the thing that like kills campaigns before they even kind of you know get birthed into the world is is, is fear of being ostracized, um, for being that person who speaks out. And I've taught, spoke to, spoke to so many petition starters who, you know, like they were, their hands were shaking when they started a petition on change.org, right? Like, or they really thought about it, like sort of like for months and months or like a year to like get to the point where they could like work up the courage to do it. Or they started as a organization so that they can be anonymous in starting the campaign um, so they can get the word out about it, but not necessarily sort of have to be, you know, kind of like the front person. Front so center, much yeah. like, yeah, like energy put into like you're rocking the boat, but like not rocking it so much that like you, you, you know, incur such such large personal costs that it becomes untenable for the individual. Because, as you know, like on Change.org, it's not activists who are generally using the site it's like usually everyday people who are campaigning on things that like are near and dear to their hearts but they're not professional activists mm. um they're not getting paid to do this stuff and you know if it impacts their livelihood like that's a real problem <laughs> you know so yeah i wish like you know my, my country doctor in japan and i have like often discussed this like we just wish there was a more welcoming environment for differing voices um yes. yeah not if I could raise like a magic wand to just you know sort of remove those barriers for people, that would just make all the difference because it's really not yeah. you know like in a lot of these places, so many people they have smartphones, they have access to the internet, um, but there is more there is more to it than that you know more of like a psychological um, barrier that keeps yeah. them from being able to say what they should be saying. You know, and that's really consistent with some of the other again like the. You know, we've spoken to a few people in in this conversation series uh, that kind of work in similar spaces that straddle the online and offline worlds, right? And yeah. like how they interact with one another. And you know, when we have this part of the conversation with them, they too have said something to the effect of, "Well, you know, the digital world doesn't exist in a vacuum, yeah. and a lot of our offline lives lead us to." 
participate in the way that we do in the online world. So it's more about removing the barriers or the obstacles that um, prohibit us from really uh, maximizing the benefits or exploiting the benefits that technology can afford us. I mean, like one of the things that comes to mind when you're when you're talking about that is like the this program that we um, uh, have continued to do for the past three years in India, which is called okay. um, She Creates Change. And um, it was sort of originally conceived because we looked at the data on the Change.org India site and there was a profound gender gap in the usage of the site, sort of like um, women versus men. I think it was like majority men. Um, and which is not true, actually, of most of the other countries that we operate in, it's more balanced. Um, and, you know, like the world knows India's gender gap is huge, obviously, in the, like, the offline world. But I thought we we were shocked by that because we were like, but isn't, wait a second, what? Like, what, what are we doing here if we're tr- amplifying that? And so we like mm-hmm. dug a bit deeper and it turned out that a lot of sort of the, you know, the quote unquote women's rights related campaigns were started by men, but with more of like a, sort of like we need to protect our women type language, right? So right. quite patriarchal, um, not to date those campaigns, like they don't come from a bad place, but I think the sure. the best of Change.org's model is really when people speak for themselves um, about the things that they're looking for. And and so we were like, well, what can we do about this? And I think we, we felt like there was a limit to what we could do digitally alone. And so, you know, we found some partner organizations and we architected sort of a training program um, that trains, you know, I think like 30 or 50 women every year. Um, before mm-hmm. COVID, it used to be an offline training program, six days um, in a sort of like retreat type space where women are connecting with each other and effectively forming sort of a community of change makers that will support one another as they sort of go on their campaign journeys coming out of that, that uh, time. And it just makes such a difference. But like the the curriculum is not focused on like, if there's one maybe section on how to start a change.org petition. And it's like, you know, goes through the technicalities of starting a petition. But the emphasis is really on sort of like figuring out what is what is your purpose? Like what what is, what is gonna help you be more autonomous in like the way that you think about the world? What are the barriers that you're facing? What are the fears and like people who like maybe holding you back? And that leads to this like really rich discussion and also really deep relationships between these women which then transfers online when they're no longer together in, you know, sort of like effectively a support group, because as you can imagine, being a woman who's trying to campaign for change in a country with as strong a gender gap as India is really hard. Right. And so we've seen excellent campaigns from that group um, and they're having real sort of like policy impacts, but I don't think they would have happened if we had approached those people individually, what they needed was to see themselves and other people and get all of the gooey emotional human side of stuff supported and then you reach a point where you're like okay like i'm ready to raise my voice and i can handle the tough stuff that's going to come as a result of being that leader right so then part of that capacity that campaigner capacity really that you're trying to build is resilience absolutely absolutely you know to, Um, to the inevitable um challenges that come with fighting for any sort of injustice, right? Totally. Like resilience and also like, you know, that real support system, right? It's like um, support system from people who get you and know where you're trying to go. Um, A lot of the stories that I heard when I first went to the couple programs that we were on the ground there is like, you know, these women want to say something, but they're not surrounded by family members or partners who want them to do those things. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, I want to speak out about animal rights. I want to speak out about sort of like my ch- kid's school and, you know, sort of the bathrooms there being horrendous. I want to do this, that, and the other. And, and like their families will be like, don't be, don't be the one to rock the boat. That's not, you know, a woman's role. 
Um, and so they're effectively isolated in their home environment and then they, you know, were able to sort of knit them together into something that makes them greater than the sum of their parts, right? So Mm-mm-mm. on that point, I guess, of making campaigning, again, participation more accessible or equitable across um, the board. How do you do that across different jurisdictions with very different needs and very different <laughs> barriers? Yeah. How do you do that, Costa? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Conversation um, for another time, perhaps. No, no. I mean, I think, oh, it's not an easy, it's not an easy question to answer. Um, my answer is that you push as much power and decision-making um, to local teams as possible. I, as a half Japanese, half American gal in Tokyo, am not going to know what like the needs are for, you know, an Indian woman based in Bangalore. Um, in fact, maybe even our team doesn't know, but they're certainly better equipped to answer than, than I am. And so the answer really is to like be as close to the user as possible, be like always listening, always learning. And then, you know, sort of like know that whatever, like even with She Creates Change, it's been through six iterations now. We're starting the next one next oh, month. Okay. They're doing yep. it entirely online because of the pandemic. And like each learning lab, we call them, has like changed and evolved significantly as a result of feedback from the participants and like the results that we were seeing. So I think it really takes this like extreme degree of humility that you actually probably don't know the answer um, and then design it sort of in an ongoing way with the people that you're trying to support. Um, but yeah, I think... That's really hard to do, <laughs> but and the and the, the the needs are very different, right? Like, and there yep. are needs in every single country in order to make the the access equitable. Um, and I don't think we're there by a long shot yet. I think everybody okay. would be like, it's not enough what we're doing now. Sure, I mean, not to softball this one too much. <laughs> um, <but laughs> I was just thinking because you know I've had a look around on the change.org sort of foundation resources and stuff, and. You know, that seems to me to be a step in that direction of equipping people with the skills necessary to totally. to undergo digital campaigns and stuff. Is that is that basically what its purpose is? Those the platform like that? Is that a, yeah, is that a I response a, to the needs mm, that have arisen through the work? Or totally. um is that something you've is that something change has kind of arrived at for a different reason? But for me, I I'm thinking, oh, change.org the change.org foundation exists to equip people uh, with these certain skills and insights, because this is stuff that seems to be missing in uh, current, you know, citizen led digital campaigning. Is that totally, a fair totally. sort of no, I think understanding that's right. of that I think genesis? Like for a long time, um, you know, like, like literally in every country would be like, if we could just like pull, pull some of the content and knowledge and best practices from the brains of our campaigners and impart them yep in sort of like an inspiring way to more people, then certainly, you know, sort of like the world would be a better place because we would have more, um, you know, sort of folks thinking in this way about how to influence power structures and, and systems, right? Um, but it's, it's sometimes hard, I think, to be kind of like when that's part of the, what you're trying to do is sort of like get people to use the site more, like, the reality is she creates changes, you know, sort of very time intensive, very labor intensive and like, you know, sort of, yeah, it results in more campaigns, but like the, I don't know, the, the link is like a bit tenuous. And I feel like within the organization, there wasn't always room. And I say this sort of like very honestly, we didn't have the resources necessarily to be able to do that um, at like a wide scale. 
And so I think what the foundation opened up for us as a possibility is like, you know, going to funders and going to other partners to say, hey, like we know that when say like women or, you know, sort of like Korean immigrants living in Japan or, you know, sort of transgender folks in Brazil, like we know that there is a need here, but just giving them access to the site is not enough. And we have this recipe yep. of, and this toolkit of like ways that we can help people to connect, form a community, start to think more like campaigners. Would you be willing to partner with us in order to execute on that program in this country directed at that particular community? That's what we're trying to do more of. Um, yep. Obviously, it's a very different model from sort of like the, the platform oriented model. I think they like complement each other nicely, but I think the foundation side is still nascent in developing what we could do there. Yeah, right. Okay. That's really interesting. And what about storytelling capacity, right? Because I, I get the impression that storytelling is a really important part of uh, any effective digital activism. Totally. What supports do you think could exist more there? Do 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 act do, do platforms like change.org offer support in, you know, basic storytelling practice and, and all that sort of stuff? Or um, what role do you think that plays? I think it's critical. I think it's so critical. Um, I mean, a petition effectively is a story. You know, yeah, when you think sure. about it, um, but most people don't think about it that way, which is a problem. I think like um, in many places, they they think, oh, petition has to be rigid and formal and bureaucratic. And, you know, there's like a proper way to do it, which there is in a lot of countries, like a legal petition has a certain format. But I think when you take mm. something like a change.org petition, it's really a mechanism for telling a story, hopefully your story about what is broken and then calling on your community to sort of help you make that change. And how a petition is written is is do or die <laughs> when it comes to sort right. of okay. whether it will sort of gain traction, um, which is why sort of when you start a petition on change.org, it's so focused on sort of different elements that we know will work, right? So it's the personal story aspect. It's the visual aspect with like the image that you're using. I think increasingly we want to be able to support people with like, you know, telling stories on other mediums besides just like the written word. Um, but even up until now, like I feel like changing how a petition is written can really change its perception. Um, so I think it's a really important part of what we do. Um, I'll be honest, I do think that there's room for us to grow on that front too, in terms of like sure. um, helping more people with that. Um, and yeah, hopefully we can get more petitions to get that advice from from experts, you know, so they can reach. Mm, that's really interesting. Because again, talking about common themes again across the different conversations, you know, the idea of story being central to how we communicate the the impact and the 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 importance of these issues, the resonance, like just cannot be understated because really it's it's a way for us to form a relationship with these issues that ensure that we're committed. Mm. Um, I but guess I think it can you be know, really anti, like like not what people expect though. If I may right. say so, I okay. feel like a yeah, lot please. of petition starters that I've spoken to, they come from a very intellectual place, um, which is like. You know, sort of, and because usually they've spent a lot of time thinking about the problem before they even reach us, right? Um, but it's not enough to make an intellectual argument, right? Like in order to right. get people yeah, to sign, cool. in order for, to get people to sort of like join you, um, I think you have to really show, be vulnerable, if I may say so, um, and show that you're human, that you need other humans to help you. Right. Um, that's that. those are the campaigns that really, I think, like take off and speak to people. There's yeah. one campaign that I love that I just like is near and dear to my heart, which is called Kutu in Japan. It was started a couple okay. of years ago, started by a woman who was working at a um, sort of funeral services company. And um, in Japanese funerals, you obviously wear black. It's very formal. 
Um, and so all the staff were wearing black, but their shoes also had to be black. But there was a rule in the handbook that when the women had to wear heels, um, you know, not too high of a heel, but still a heel, while the men could wear flat shoes. And she had this moment, she described it in the petition so vividly, like where she was, because in Japan, you don't wear your shoes inside. So she was stepping up into sort of like um, an office or something. And she straightened her shoes and then saw her male colleague's shoes were sort of not, not sort of like kind of perfectly like this, which is what you're supposed mm -hmm. to do in Japan. Everything is very right. like that. Um, and so she, 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 you know, sort of corrected that. And then she just had a moment where she was like, if I could wear shoes like that, like I would be so much more comfortable during the day. Right. She had been suffering from like blisters and kind of like, you know, sort of pain because of the shoes that she was being asked to wear. And they walk a lot in this job. Right. And so like she saw, I think she tweeted that night. She was like, someday I would like to start like a movement or a campaign that allows women in formal settings in Japan to not have to wear heels. And who caught that tweet? No one but Mamata-san from Team Japan, whom I mentioned at the beginning. Yes, and yes. he was like, you got to start that campaign. You know, she DM'd her on Twitter and that's sort of like where that campaign was born. But such a, just such a like visual moment, right? Um, and if you're a Japanese yeah. person, you know that that what you do to like make this shoes be clean in your sort of like um, door space. And I was like, oh yeah, I totally could understand that. Um, and that, you know, led to 20, 25,000 signatures on her campaign. She managed to get the prime minister to wow. respond to a question in the Japanese diet about this issue. It was actually such a hilarious moment because he was being questioned by the head of the communist party, which if you can imagine sort of head of the conservative party, head of the communist party, not always kind of like seeing eye to eye on policy issues. He asked the question, it was prime minister Abe at the time he said, I do not believe that women should be asked to wear, you know, sort of anything that is different from their sort of male counterparts if they are in the same role. And the communist party member looked a little bit stunned and was like, Abbasan, this might be the first time that you and I agree on anything. And then there was a round wow. of applause in the diet um, as a result of that. And all that from, you know, um, Ishikawa-san deciding to tweet about, yeah. you know, seeing her heels next to non-heeled shoes for her. That's great. For her dude it's such an amazing example because there's a, a clear story, a very clear context a very measurable outcome, a very Absolutely. clear decision maker, right? And that seems to be sort of the, and also it's something that is in furtherance of a bigger goal, even if it's not necessarily changing the status quo immediately, totally. right? Like, I mean, even just starting the conversation on something like that was really huge. Um, and then what happened, like the, the, the media picked up on that story. And so they started interrogating, you know, like companies where there is a uniform, and whether it's really necessary for them to be wearing heels. And the, the, right. the example that came up again and again was um, cabin, uh, sort of like, uh, what is it, cabin attendants in Japanese? We call them CAs. Sort of like um, people, flight attendants, I guess in English. Oh, flight attendants. Um, sorry yep. about that. Um, yeah. So flight attendants for Japan Airways and then ANA who have to wear heels, even the airport staff have to wear heels, and they're running around the airport. And, you know, is that even safe? Right. It's just like ignited a conversation about it. As far as I can tell, they haven't sort of changed the policy yet. But even having it be a discussion is a step forward. Um, and her campaign still isn't done. So let's see where it goes. But yeah. Yeah. Great. Really impactful. Emmy, just I'm conscious. I'm conscious of your time and we're, we're approaching the tail end. So I wanted to sort of wrap things up with you, um, maybe with just some advice or messages or just kind of 
perspectives you would offer to people like you know just the everyday person like listening to this who you know and I guess I think of two types of people like there's the person that wants to be a better campaigner and use their online space a bit more effectively or and there's also the people that are cynical towards this sort of stuff so do you have much you would say to either of those sorts of people about what what this all means for them and what you'd love to what you think they could do to to take that step in this direction yeah I mean for the person who wants to do more um there is so much that one can do but I would also be strategic and kind of like pick the few things that really matter to you most and go deeper on them um So rather than signing, I mean, don't not sign those 20 petitions, but maybe the petition starter from one of the petitions that you signed really needs help, right? Like maybe they need help organizing an event to be able to reach their decision maker. Maybe they need help creating a video that tells a story about stuff. Like don't just end it with signing um, because signing is just the first step of a very long kind of like road. And the goal that the petition starter is trying to reach is, is that not just collecting signatures on the petition. Um, so to everyone out there who maybe isn't ready to start their own campaign, it's like, just, you know, be a collaborator to someone who has already done it. And that in and of itself is such a huge boost to that person yeah, because they need a team great. around them to sort of um, really take it forwards. Um, to the people who are cynics, <laughs> man, I would just say, like, keep your cynicism to yourself. <laughs> um, I know maybe that's not the right thing to say, but. Sure. Yeah, I just I, I guess what I what I really dislike is um, kind of armchair criticism of people who are trying to make a difference. Um, it happens a lot in Japan, actually, where people are like, oh, you know, they make like very intellectual arguments or they're like, oh, but what about this, that and other thing? They're just kind of like they want to be perceived as knowing more or, you know, sort mm-hmm. of like being the person who like understands it all. And I'm like. Would I rather hang out with a person who's like, you know, pretending to understand it all or the person who, even if they don't know 100% of the answer is like trying to change it for the better. Um, sure. And it looks, it's going to be amateur and it's not going to be perfect. And it's like, yep. these are everyday people like just trying to make it work, you know, and they're like learning along the way. It's like, just have some like compassion and empathy for that. And like, right. don't. Maybe that's the challenge yeah. you set yourselves, you know, or that we ask people to set themselves, you know. Maybe and you just, don't know their full story, you know? It's like, don't judge them just based on, like, the, the very small slice of what you're mm-hmm. seeing because you just yeah, never right. know the depth of someone's story. On right? that sort of um, note, in terms of setting that challenge of looking at other people compassionately um, and, you know, maybe that reminder that, you know, generally wanting to change society for the better, regardless of how we do it, generally that's a better place to start than not. Totally. But these measures are... Totally you know, the digital world is a facilitator of a longer ongoing discussion, I guess. Um, Yeah, that's a great note to end on. So Emmy, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate the discussion, the vulnerability, the richness of um, the wins and challenges that you shared with us. Uh, If people are interested in hearing more about you or the work that you're involved in, where can they find you? Uh, Gosh, well, they can find me on LinkedIn, but I'm not sure how interesting I am, <laughs> to be honest with you. That's fine. Um, That's fine. I think we're posting, we're now posting insights from the Change.org Foundation's work regularly onto our blog on the Change Foundation website. Um, 
And then also, I guess it's just like follow those campaigns that you're you're keen on in your country. Um, and I think the key really is not just to sign, but to read the updates that come from the campaigners. Um, mm. Because oftentimes people will say like, oh, like, you know, I signed a petition, but then I never found out what happened. And a right. lot of people are posting those updates. So make sure that you're, you know, I know it's easy to get lost in your inbox, but, you know, sort of don't, don't sort of like let go right after signing yes. um, try to right. follow sort of like the full arc and yeah, maybe take one more step to get involved. That's awesome. Great, Emmy. Again, thank you so much for your time and I'm sure we'll, we'll check in again really soon. Thank you. All right. Take care. You have been listening to Undesign, a series of conversations about the big issues that matter to all of us. Undesign is made possible by the wonderful team at Draw History. And if you want to learn more about each guest or each topic, we have curated a suite of resources and reflections for you on our Undesign page at www.drawhistory.com. Thank you to the talented Jimmy Lindbull for editing and mixing our audio. Special thank you to our guests for joining us and showing us how important we all are in redesigning our world's futures. And last but not least, a huge thank you to you, our dear listeners, for joining us on this journey of discovery and hope. The future needs you. Make sure you stay on the journey with us by subscribing to Undesign on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are available.